0: Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, this morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm.
1: Welcome back to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Dias. With two episodes left, I wanted to talk about what the war meant 30 years later. That song up front, Annie Lennox, No More I Love Yous, I purchased that cassette a few years after the war. And in those days before iTunes and all the ways that we listen to music now, we would keep our cassette sometimes in the middle console of our cars or in the glove compartment. I kept mine in the glove compartment, and I remember reaching in one day looking for that Annie Lennox cassette, and I pulled out instead that Best of Marvin Gaye cassette that I had purchased at that little makeshift PX over in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia during the war. And just seeing it and thinking about it, it's funny that right after the war, I almost never talked about it. It wasn't that I had been traumatized or anything like that. It just – it's very difficult to make people who were not in that particular war or any war for that matter understand what it was like. And so I've enjoyed the commonality of getting back together and talking to some of the people that had that shared experience with me. And so, like I said, with two episodes left, as we wrap this up, in this episode, I'm going to talk to you about the ramifications of Desert Storm 30 years later, even though very few people ever talk about it anymore. The the, the residue, the the resonation of that war, the resonance of that war, when you look around, really is everywhere. And so we're going to talk about that. And then next week for the final episode, just going to talk about just the rapturous moment of coming home. All right. I want to start this episode and use a picture, which is tricky to do on a podcast for this episode. And it's the only picture I'm posting for this show. And I didn't take it by the way. It's one of the most iconic pictures from the war. It it appeared in Parade magazine and I remember this because I you know it was summertime and this uh, we used to get the Sunday newspaper And within the Sunday newspaper, they would have, believe it or not, this is going to sound crazy to Generation Next, that's where you would get the TV Guide. If you wanted to know what was coming on television for the coming week, you would look at the TV Guide that was sent out with the Sunday newspaper. And my goodness, when I was a kid, if you lost that, my dad – anyway, so – it, Parade magazine was like uh, – it, w- it would be in there with all the, 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 you know, the circulars and the sails and the you know, um, siding and roofing ads and things like that. And I remember seeing that picture. I remember very, very well because it was several months after the war was over. It was going back to normal, life back to normal, and it just kind of zapped me back and reminded me – in 1991, that you know, just a few months before, we had been to the biggest show on earth, and so I want to use that picture. If you, if, you don't, if you can't see it on your phone right now or on your computer, all you have to do is Google Crying Soldier Desert Storm. It will be the first one that pops up. It was taken towards the end of the war on or about the 27th of February. If you look closely, now these days you can pinch Zoom. To the crew chief who is seated behind the crying soldier, you'll see he's holding the green ID card in his left hand and riding with the other. I don't know the name of the soldier on the card, and I don't know the names of all the soldiers in this picture. I know two of them, but I don't, and I don't know them person. I just know them from doing a little bit of research on the picture. I don't know their names, but I do know their story, and I do know their history because we come from the same generation. What is most likely true about all five soldiers in this picture, as is true about me, is they belong to Generation X. I am a historian. I was a professional speaker for 10 years. I talked on generational marketing and management, and so I know a lot about generational things, and I certainly know a lot about Generation X because I grew up as Generation X. The five soldiers in this picture, as well as the pilots up front flying the Black Hawk helicopter, were very likely born in the mid to late 1960s or the early 1970s. We all grew up playing outside. We never owned a computer or a cell phone or a TV with a flat screen. We had TVs with flat tops. That's where you were supposed to put the TV guide. It is always supposed to be there, and it wasn't always there. Um, The soldiers in that picture, all of them, are part of a new army that in 1991, and it brings us the first key First key lesson of what it all meant. When I say New Army, Desert Storm was absolutely that. Desert Storm cemented the United States military in the minds of everyone around the world as the best in the world. A fact that endures to this very day 30 years later. The five men in this picture are individual representations of the generation of soldiers that really erased the memories of Vietnam. And for all the talk about new and better and gee whiz military equipment that the military possessed in 1991, the biggest improvement between Vietnam and Desert Storm was the quality of men and women who had that green and white laminated ID card and held up their hand at the MEP station and said before God and country, this I'll defend. For the five men in this picture, they probably never thought they would be fighting in the desert. And for one of them, probably never thought he would die there. If you now move to the crying soldier, his reaction is genuine, and it too reflects the new army. After Vietnam, the Pentagon Pentagon got busy trying to fix some of the deficiencies that had plagued the efforts of the military, especially on the ground in Vietnam, despite the fact that the United States had a lot of the same technological and weaponry advantages over the Viet Cong and and the Vietnamese army in the 1960s and early 1970s as we did in 1991. It wasn't until the early 1970s that the American military began to use all of those assets in a concentrated effort, and that's when the North Vietnamese you know, decided, okay, we've had enough of this. Let's wrap this thing up. One of the things on the ground, however, that the military realized had to be fixed was the realization that the one-year tour of duty, combat tour of duty in Vietnam had been a mistake. Like any other team, a military unit gets better with time and training. So in the mid-1980s, the United States Army started what was called the Cohort Program, C-O-H-O-R-T. And, of course, the Army has acronyms for everything, Cohesion, Operational Readiness, and Training, Cohort. Soldiers went to basic training advanced individual training, and then onto their permanent duty stations as one unit. The same people that arrived at basic training with you were with you through your entire active duty tour. I was part of a cohort unit when I joined the Army in 1986 and was sent to the 7th Infantry Division at Fort Ord, California. Like the people in this picture from the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division, the training was tough and realistic. And it was, I mean, it, it required people to be smart. The American military improved the kind of folks that it recruited. It was no longer just a refuge for people who weren't smart enough to go to college or were, you know, given that choice, go to jail or go to boot camp. That is not the army that exists from the mid 1980s on into Desert Storm. And these cohort units. That shared journey from civilian to soldier created very close friendships. And the agony and sadness on the face of that soldier that is crying is genuine. And I like that picture for another reason. We're going to talk about it in a minute. The number one thing that the military instilled in its fighting men and women was that of adaptability. They didn't create robots because robots don't cry. And like I said in that picture, that soldier's grief is genuine. He's probably been with the soldier in that helicopter that's been killed for a long time. But I love this picture for another reason. You get to see up close how the United States Army soldier dressed, especially the soldiers that were driving the tanks and the Bradley fighting vehicles. In Desert Storm, the the air campaign gets so much of the attention, and it deserves it. Uh, uh, But the ground war, because it it was only 100 hours, doesn't always get as much focus. And in reality, the real heroes of Desert Storm, we never talk about, myself included, the logistical effort of taking people out of Europe and out of the United States and out of that Cold War mentality and moving half a million people into the empty desert the Air Force and all of the you know, strategic air command and getting the gear and the Navy, the logistical feat is something that we never talk about in terms of Desert Storm, and I wish I had spent more time talking about it. Like I said, you get to see up close the way soldiers dressed, the way they looked on the battlefield, and again, you see the great adaptability of the American military – these soldiers in this picture are from the 7th Corps. They had been stationed in Germany waiting and training for World War III, the grand showdown in Europe against the Russians in the Warsaw Pact. You can see the forest pattern green uniforms because that's where everyone expected the next war was going to take place. And in less than a year, the army equipped, trained, and prepared to fight in those forests and plains of Europe was instead deployed to a desert battlefield and performed superbly. As an aside, during the Cold War, getting stationed in Germany during the Cold War was considered one of the best assignments. And these guys in the 7th Corps were as tough as they come. The Americans have been getting along and getting it on with Germans for a long, long time since the end of World War II. These were young men who spent their nights chasing German girls, drinking authentic German beer, and yet still showing up partially drunk for PT, physical training at 5.30 in the morning. The Cold War, ending as it did in 1991, is one of those historical moments of inflection that aided and abetted our ability to send so many people to Desert Storm. The Cold War being over in 1991 freed up the 7th Corps to unleash its toughness and readiness and adaptability, and it defeated the fourth largest army in the world in 100 hours, and it wasn't even close. And that is a second big historical point. Without the end of the Cold War, we never could have moved the Seventh Corps out of Germany the way it was. Desert Storm was a victory for those who served in it, but the Cold War Army and the Vietnam veterans who provided the tough leadership and training also share in our last wartime victory. If you move to the right, The other wounded soldier in this picture, you can see him lifting up his bandage over his eyes to see the name on another ID card that is being held up by the black crew chief. And it belongs to the soldier you cannot see in this picture because he is in the blood-soaked body bag that contains the 19-year-old body of Private Andy Alanese. It is his death that the crying soldier is reacting to. And this brings me to one of the other ramifications of Desert Storm, and one that was not entirely positive. Desert Storm created the illusion that war was easy, and it's not. It never will be. Even in peacetime, the military is a dangerous place. Any job where the new employee orientation requires you to learn how to shoot a powerful semi-automatic rifle and throw a hand grenade is a different kind of gig and a dangerous one. During Desert Storm back home, Americans were treated to images on CNN of bombs flying into windows and down smokestacks and hitting their targets with tremendous precision. And the American public was led to believe that, hey, it was just a war of fire and forget, push a button and the computer takes over. It wasn't that, and it certainly wasn't that on the ground. However, the American military hit what it aimed at. But with all that accurate and deadly firepower, it is in an age just before GPS comes commonplace. And the accuracy of the weapons and the ability to identify friend from foe had not caught up to one another yet. The two men wounded and the one dead soldier in this picture were not hit by Iraqis. They were hit by other Americans. Friendly fire. As I said before, half a million American servicemen and women were sent to Desert Storm. Private Andy Allenese, 19 years old, and 145 others were killed in action, and 146 other Americans died in accidents. And speaking of all those gee whiz images on CNN that I I even watched in the theater of operation when I could get in front of a TV that is another outcome of the war that resonates to this very day although in 2021 CNN today is an outright joke 30 years ago it was really something they were there the night the war started in Baghdad doing something that I don't believe has ever happened or had ever happened In in military world history, they were on the ground where the targets were being hit and reporting on it as it happened. In doing that, CNN became a juggernaut and the impetus for what we now refer to as the 24-hour news cycle. And that is true to this very day, and it impacts everything, international events, entertainment, and of course – politics. In 1991, despite having led the country and the world to this amazing victory in Desert Storm, President Bush was not Times Man of the Year in 1991. That honor went to CNN President Ted Turner. And so today, 30 years later, the other not-so-positive aspect is that CNN, like every other news organization in 1991, became a place that I think – overrepresented the minority view, the minority view being that Americans were against the war. There were some people that protested the war, but they were never a solid majority. And they amplified the message from these armchair generals and TV studio military experts, insert air quotes here, that we were going to lose that war. If you go back to my very first episode in August of 2020, that was the name of the episode experts say it's a war we can't win there was no way 19 and 20 year old kids could beat the fourth largest army in the world and to this very day cable news in many areas sensationalizes things and creates a creates a view of events that i don't think is accurate as soon as cnn left that that context of just reporting what was happening and getting into the opinion part of news, I think that's where it went wrong. That's where it went wrong for everybody in cable news. And 30 years later, I don't watch CNN. I don't watch Fox News. I don't watch any of it. And so 30 years later, Desert Storm is why we have all of those cable news networks Everybody rushed in to try to catch up to what CNN had going for them in 1991, and that ramification is still with us today. Speaking of the fact that President Bush President Bush did not win "Man of the Year" in 1991. he had won it the year before in 1990, so maybe they didn't want to give it to him two times in a row. We've got to talk about. The first President Bush, because it also is one of the big ramifications that we're dealing with 30 years after Desert Storm. President George Bush, the 41st President of the United States, was in his own right a legitimate war hero from World War II. He was shot down and injured and was the only one from his little war family who was flying torpedo bombers off the USS San Jacinto in the South Pacific to survive the war. And I think that's survivor's guilt was something he lived with till his dying day. He was a gentleman, and he was a nice guy. And unfortunately, what we needed at the end of Desert Storm was a bit of a tyrant. But President Bush, having lost so much in World War II, I think he believed that the United Nations was the way forward. He referred to it as a new world order, and that that's how we would keep the peace. He had good intentions. But our enemies never do. There was actually only one world leader who knew how to handle Saddam Hussein after he invaded Kuwait on August 2, 1990. And unfortunately for the world and the thousands and thousands of Americans who would die in Iraq in the mid-2000s, she would leave office three months after the invasion of Kuwait and would not have any influence on how the war ended. And that person is the Iron Lady Margaret Thatcher, who by the end of Desert Storm was the former prime minister of Great Britain. I don't know if Saddam Hussein was good or lucky, but Margaret Thatcher leaving before the end of Desert Storm, I think, is the single number one reason why Saddam Hussein was allowed to stay in power. You would watch CNN, and Margaret Thatcher would give these awesome Interviews. Oh, I want to thank President Bush for his tremendous leadership in this affair, but Saddam Hussein must not be allowed to stay in power. The deprivations that he has caused must be assigned to him and him alone. She absolutely understood that the only way you deal with a dictator is to make sure that he's not the dictator after he loses a war he started. President Bush deferred to the United Nations at the end of of Desert storm. For my part, I think and thought at the time Saddam Hussein should have been removed from power. I told Mike Kalanza that very thing, sitting on the tarmac, getting ready to go home. On March first, nineteen ninety one, you could have ridden a big wheel all the way to Baghdad, armed only with the BB gun. However, again, President Bush, looking towards that new world's order, said, Hey, the United Nations mandate, which called for the ejection of the Iraqi army from Kuwait, not A change in Iraq's leadership said, hey, we're just going to move on. And so Saddam Hussein, the man responsible for all the death and destruction, would remain in power for another dozen years. In 1991, the American soldier had learned how to win a war. Thirty years later, the American statesman has still yet to figure out how to win the peace. At the end of Desert Storm, President Bush, who had an 88% approval rating in the Gallup poll, The very next year would lose the presidential election to someone who in the spring of 1991 most Americans had never heard of, the governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton. One of the other reasons I think there was never a push to Baghdad was that the Saudis wanted us out as fast as possible. Ramadan was in mid-March that year, and nobody wanted half a million Christian soldiers in Saudi Arabia. And that is one of the other ramifications that still plays out today. The Judeo-Christian West and the Islamic, or as we called it in those days, the Arabic cultures of the Middle East are simply not compatible. You can put all the coexist bumper stickers you want on your car in Austin, Seattle, and Berkeley, but these two civilizations are and will remain opposed. I see these stories about how you can win a trip to outer space, the moon or Mars or whatever. I'm not interested. I've been to another planet right here on Earth, and it was called Saudi Arabia. The Saudis dressed differently, acted differently. And because of my being on that security detail for those two Saudi officers from the Saudi airbase, I came to understand the contempt the Saudis felt for me and the Americans who had come into their country, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the home of Islam to do what they could not. The entire Middle East bore witness to the unparalleled might of the combined arms of the United States air, armor, and naval juggernaut and knew we could not be beat on the battlefield. So our enemies, whose hateful ideology is fostered and taught and encouraged to this very day in Saudi Arabia, chose to change their tactics as well. No tanks, no artillery, No soldiers, just some box cutters and airplanes full of civilians being flown into buildings on a beautiful Tuesday morning. When we learned on September 12th that the majority of the September 11th terrorists were from Saudi Arabia, I personally was not surprised until the Western democracies encouraged by diplomacy or force a complete overhaul of the culture of the Middle East The way we did with Japan and Germany after World War II, there will never be peace on earth. I did not meet a single Saudi, Iraqi, Kuwaiti, or Qatari who was worth one American life. And I never met one Saudi Arabian who said, thank you for coming over here and protecting our billions of dollars in oil revenue. And our inability to see this, this incompatibility, you can't have half peace, half war constantly at odds with one another. I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. I don't know why we treat these countries in the Middle East differently than we treated Japan and Germany. But the failure to do so leads to a second invasion of Iraq in 2003 and thousands and thousands of dead and wounded Americans. Despite it being the last war that we definitively won in this country, 30 years later, we still have soldiers serving and dying in Iraq. Finally, to end this episode on a positive note, the other outcome of the war that resonates to this day is that desert storm and the men and women who served in it Reestablished the confidence and the relationship between the American military and the American public. After Vietnam, the military was actually looked down on and not respected. Think of movies like Taps and Officer and a Gentleman. There's always that scene where the local townies are making fun of the guys in the military, and then Richard Gere has to pull out the Karate Kid moves on those dudes in the street outside the bar. That was Real. No one prior to Desert Storm ever walked up to someone in uniform and said, thank you for your service. Not that we need it, but it never happened or anything like that. Desert Storm changed that. It restored the relationship that endures to this very day between the American military and the American public, and I'm very grateful for that. I grew up in a military town, San Antonio, Texas, on almost an exact midpoint between Joint Base Fort Sam Houston and Joint Base Randolph Air Force Base. They're still there, and the military was treated well in San Antonio. But when I was in the active-duty Army, I was stationed at Fort Ord, California… In Monterey, California, a very uppity bourgeois part of California, where the guys in uniform with those funny haircuts were looked at as a nuisance and an eyesore. The five men in that picture, the half a million on the battlefield, on the ground, on the sea, and in the air, restored the good humor between the American soldier and the American civilian. And that, to me, is one of the most positive outcomes of Operation Desert Storm. Well, for my part, and all of this is my own opinion, if I had to answer that one big question, did we end the war too soon, my answer would be yes, but we were all ready to come home. And so, in the next episode, I'm going to talk to you about what that was like. It had taken us 20 days to go from civilians back to being full-time soldiers. It had been chaotic and stressful. Coming home was going to be completely different. I'm going to tell you what it was like to come home on a Sunday. We had Monday off, and by Friday evening, we were back to being reservists, free to resume the lives that had been interrupted the war. I will talk about our unexpected rapturous reunion with our loved ones and families at Kelly Air Force Base on that glorious Sunday night that up to that point was the greatest night of my life. The calm comfortable perfection of home. So join us next time for our final episode of Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. Until then, take care.
0: By train, way.